Last Sunday was the most difficult sermon I've ever preached. It was extremely difficult to prepare and extremely difficult to, uh, to preach. And for those who were here, it was probably extremely difficult to hear because there was a lot to it. I, I'm pretty sure I failed in making it simple, um, simple enough to understand, but I did my best. And this morning is an extension of that, but much, much more palatable, I think. And the reason I did what I did last time, we're going through a series in 1 John. And we're in 1 John 2, and we're coming to a text at the end of 1 John 2, verse 2, that I need to comment on, that, and that's the reason I did what I did last Sunday to set this up. Um, so I hope and pray that today makes more sense than last Sunday. Next time we'll get into something, obviously, I think, more practical. 1 John 2 and verse 2. And he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation. Propitiation means the sacrifice that satisfies. It satisfies the demands from God's justice. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Last time we said there are two principal soteriological systems inside evangelicalism. Remember, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Those two soteriological systems are Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism and Arminianism. And this has been an ongoing debate inside the church the past five centuries. And in that brutal, mind-numbing message from last time, we focused most of our attention on Calvinism, and we did that in order to set up this morning's message. It wasn't just a random selected sermon. There was a method in my madness. That last phrase is from Shakespeare's Hamlet. Um, Remember, historic Calvinism consists of five basic points that are illustrated in the acronym TULIP. T, total depravity or total inability. U, unconditional election. L, our subject this morning, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. P, perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. There is a thorough explanation of those five points in the message from last time, and that message is available on our website. I might add, more males accept Calvinism than females. There are more people from emerging generations um, that accept Calvinism than those that accept Calvinism from older generations. There was a recent Calvinistic movement called the Young, Restless, and Reformed. This morning we are refuting, attempting to refute, the third and most controversial point to Calvinism, and that is limited atonement. The reason we are doing that is because 1 John 2 and verse 2, I believe, is a classic refutation of that doctrine. Let's start at the word atonement. The word atonement can be broken apart to mean an at-one-ment. Atonement meaning at one month. The word atonement means to reconcile or bring together as one. Atonement means doing what is necessary to bring about a reuniting of two parties who were at odds. Notice the definition. Atonement is God 
and sinful man being brought together, God and sinful man being brought together, meaning reunited through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And that is the essence of the atonement. Uh, From last time, we said there are two basic perspectives on the atonement. The first position is the Calvinistic position called limited atonement. And this perspective teaches that the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus was limited to only those persons that God had predetermined would receive salvation. Notice the formal statement. Limited atonement or particular atonement. Calvinism, sometimes called high Calvinism or full Calvinism, teaches that Jesus' sacrificial death was not intended to make salvation possible for all people, but its intent was to secure the salvation of those that have been elected to salvation. One more time. According to Calvinism, Jesus' sacrificial death was not intended to make salvation possible for all people, but its intention was to secure the salvation of those that have been elected to salvation. This is where Calvinists themselves sometimes divide, as four-point Calvinists reject limited atonement and accept the second atonement position called unlimited atonement or general atonement. And that perspective means that the atoning sacrificial death of Jesus was not limited to a select number of people, but that it extends to all people from all time. That is the position that is preached from this pulpit, that Jesus died for all people, period. Notice the formal statement, unlimited or general atonement, non-Calvinist and four-point Calvinist teach the sacrificial death of Jesus was sufficient to save all people, but is efficient to save only those that believe on Jesus. One more time, non-Calvinist and four-point Calvinists teach the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ was sufficient, able to save all people, but is efficient to save only those that believe on Jesus. Some people reword that definition as the atonement is unlimited in its invitation, but it is limited in its application. That means that Christ's death made it possible for everyone to be saved. But it did not actually secure the salvation of anyone because Jesus died for all people. Only those persons that believe on Jesus and receive him are saved. I might interject a footnote. Last time we said evangelicals should agree that God has elected us, chosen us to salvation. And that part is not in question, or shouldn't be in question. Christians are the elect. We have been selected, elected, chosen to salvation. The question, the debatable question, is how did that election happen? How were we elected? Calvinism teaches that God exercised his sovereign prerogative and arbitrarily elected some to be saved based on nothing good in those he elected. He selected some. He didn't select others. 
Arminianism teaches that God elected or chose those that he knew from the eternal past. He knew who would choose him. The controversial question is, are we one of the elect? Because God in his sovereign predetermination chose us to receive Jesus and then prearranged that we would agree to that? Or were we elected because God in his omniscience and all knowledge knew? God knew we would want Jesus, and so God elected us to salvation on that basis. Calvinism teaches that God wanted me. Arminium teaches that God knew I would want him. The question of divine election is one of the most debated and controversial doctrines in evangelicalism. On a personal basis, I, cannot, I can't accept either position. I'm not an Arminian, and although I am Calvinistic to some degree, I do accept the fifth point, preservation of the saints. I'm not Calvinistic enough to be considered a Calvinist. I contend in our finite humanness, we cannot, cannot understand how God determined who would be elected to salvation. To understand election is to understand God, and that's not possible. Nor is it necessary to understand exactly how God operates in order to be and do what God has called us to be and do. I want us to see a short video clip from a young pastor who was ordained in the Reformed Church of America. That is a Calvinistic denomination. So he does have a background in Calvinism, and it seems he was at one point caught up in Calvinism. I don't know where he is now. I'm not doing this to recommend him or his congregation. This is just an illustration. Please watch this. I remember once when I was uh, in seminary, and I was uh, in the King David Hotel, and I was sitting with a couple of rabbis, these guys. Uh, Benicio Del Toro was there, second from the right. <laughs> Just kidding, that's from Snatch, but I'm trying to give you a visual. And uh, I'm sitting in a, the King David lobby, I think it was called, in, in LAX, and was about to go to Israel. And uh, I was sitting there with these two. Hannah, were you, were you there? Yeah, Hannah and I were there together. And we were sitting and talking to these two Orthodox rabbis. And uh, I said, you know, we were talking back and forth, and they said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a pastor. And they said, are you evangelical? We like evangelicals because evangelicals like Israel. And I said, I, I am an evangelical, and I'm a sort of a rare breed of evangelicals. We're called Calvinists. We're the frozen chosen. <laughs> and uh, he, he, said, uh, he said, what does that mean? What does Calvinist mean? I said, well, you know, we're basically really obsessed with, you know, the sovereignty of God and God's planning of everything. We talk a lot about philosophically, you know. And I just started asking him, I said, well, what do the Jews believe? What do the Orthodox Jews believe? I mean, did God know we were going to meet? And did he know I was going to sit here? Did you know I was going to pick up this pen? Did you know everything that was going to happen? Did he preordain it all? If he knows everything and he has control over everything, did he make everything happen? And if so, what does, what does that say about the character of God and about our own free will? And I'm going on and on like this. And then I just finished. I was like, and they looked at me a little bit like I was an idiot. And they looked at each other and looked at me. And one guy goes, who can know such things? And um, can I just tell you, man, I was in the heap of my Calvinism, and, I, and at the time that was really very helpful for me. 
It really was super helpful for me. She'd just be like, I don't know. There are some things maybe in life that we spend a lot of time dwelling on um, that aren't going to be helpful to you, to me, or to what God's called you to do. Sometimes it's good to just live in that mystery and to be okay with that. I agree. Sometimes it's good to just live in that mystery and be okay with that. And I am okay with that. I contend that both soteriological systems are flawed. I believe those systems are flawed in that both systems attempt to explain the unexplainable, and that cannot be done. Just as the Jewish rabbi said, who can know such things? I've had dozens of conversations um, and friendships over decades with people I perceived as hardcore Calvinists. Some of them, now some of them are great friends and people I love, and we just have fun talking about it, but some of them are just, just, it's Calvinism from beginning to end. And one of the problems those Calvinists have is their absolute, stubborn, determined dogmatism. And I don't believe we can be that dogmatic about this matter. Because there are countless highly educated, highly intelligent, respected, sincere, and godly theologians on both sides of this debate. Um, so as not to complicate this subject, I'm using the word elect to mean those that are saved. No matter how election has transpired, it is undeniable that Christians are considered the elect. We are the elect. We were elected to salvation. And so limited atonement, the Calvinistic perspective, means that Christ's sacrifice was intended to save only the elect, and it actually secured salvation for the elect. Christ's sacrifice, according to them, secured everything necessary to their salvation, including the faith that those individuals would ultimately exercise in Jesus in order to be saved. That is the essence of limited atonement. And I categorically reject that teaching. Throughout this sermon, I'm evaluating eight biblical references and statements that I believe refute limited atonement and instead teach that Jesus did die for all sins from all people from all time. And besides these texts we're addressing, there are other passages that explicitly comment on the extent of the atonement. I mentioned some of those references on the note sheet. And in addition to those, there are other passages that implicitly teach unlimited atonement. I need to interject a footnote. The man that first organized Calvinistic, basic Calvinistic teaching uh, was the 4th century church father Augustine or Augustine. Now, the TULIP uh, acronym uh, didn't exist until 1932, but the teaching, the basic teaching, uh, probably was first organized by Augustine. And it's interesting, Augustine did not believe in limited atonement. He argued for unlimited atonement. Some of us remember the Council of Dort, that famous council in the Netherlands, um, where this matter was debated. One-fourth of the Calvinist delegates at the Synod of Dort argued for unlimited atonement. One-third of the delegates 
drafting the Calvinistic Westminster Confession, argued for unlimited atonement. And John Calvin himself did not believe in limited atonement. Theologian Dr. Avid Allen has authored a classic word, work called The Extent of the Atonement. It's 850 pages in length. It contains more than 3,000 quotations. And in that publication, Dr. Allen mentions some three dozen times in Calvin's commentaries and in Calvin's sermons where Calvin taught unlimited atonement. So five-point Calvinists, meaning those Calvinists that hold to limited atonement, have actually out-Calvin Calvin. And, and that's not good. Let's get started on the biblical argumentation for unlimited atonement. One, Isaiah 53, verse 6. This is a famous messianic prophetical passage, often quoted at Christmas. This means Isaiah made a prophetical statement. A prophetical statement is a prediction about the promised Jewish Messiah. That prophetical statement was made more than seven centuries before the Messiah would be born as Jesus. Notice. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, meaning God, Yahweh, has laid on him, meaning laid on the promised Messiah, Jesus, the iniquity or sin of us all. It is interesting that this statement begins and ends with the word all. The same group of people is referred to using the same designation, and that designation is the word all. Notice that the all at the beginning of this verse that are said to have gone astray into sin is the same all at the end of this verse that the promised Messiah bears the sins of at his death. Someone said all means all. And that's all that all can mean. That's not necessarily true. Sometimes the immediate context where the word all is found indicates otherwise. But it is true in this case that all means all. And that's all that all can mean. Because the context of this verse implies that the word all is describing the entire human race. Question, is there anyone alive that is an exception to these statements. Notice the beginning half of this verse. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In the spiritual dimension, is there a human being that hasn't resembled a sheep that has wandered off and gone astray and that hasn't turned to his own way? No, that's a rhetorical question. That statement indicts us all. And the second half of this verse reads, And the Lord God has laid on him, laid on the Messiah, who is Jesus, the iniquity or sin of us all. This verse is totally nonsensical unless the all that have gone astray are the same all whose iniquities and sins were crucified on the promised Messiah. That would be an unlimited sacrifice. Second text, 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. 1 Timothy 4, verse 10. Paul said, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach. So Paul said, This is the reason we do what we do. This is the reason we endure what we have endured. Because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. Men is translated from the Greek word anthropo, and that word anthropo means 
human being or mankind, God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, the argument that Calvinists that teach limited atonement use is that if Jesus died for all people, then all people automatically receive salvation. And since it is a demonstrable fact, a biblical truism, that all people aren't going to be saved, then according to them, that means Jesus did not die for all people. But that is flawed logic. From last time, remember the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, his logic? He said that if Christ died for all, then all will be saved. That's called universalism, and that is a heretical teaching. Understand something. A universal sacrifice doesn't mean a universal salvation. A universal sacrifice doesn't mean a universal salvation because the statement I just read distinguishes between all men, meaning mankind, and those who believe. Notice the second half of this verse. Who is the Savior of all men, meaning mankind, especially of those who believe. This statement indicates that Jesus did something for all mankind that is something less than what he does for those that believe on him. And that reinforces the premise that Jesus' sacrificial death has made it possible to save all mankind. But that sacrifice is only applicable and effective if someone has exercised his faith in Jesus Christ. A third text, 1 John 2 and verse 2, and this is uh, the verse from our series in 1 John. And he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. Notice, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This is a knockout text because unless someone imposes his theological bias and presuppositions onto this verse, this is a clear and definitive statement on unlimited atonement. Let me read that again. He himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. Our sins meaning John's sins. He is the one that authored this. And the sins of those Christians he's addressing this letter to. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only. Meaning not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. Meaning also for the sins of the whole world. A plain reading of this text means that Christ's sacrifice was not only sufficient for the sins of those that are elect to salvation, but Jesus' sacrifice was also for the sins of the whole world or the homo sapien species. But some Calvinists disagree and interpret that statement to teach that the word world there means the elect, the elect from all people groups throughout all geographical regions of the world. Unless someone is reading this verse through a Calvinistic grid, and some do, unless that's the case, then no one reading this verse is going to come to any conclusion other than the whole world mentioned here refers to the entire human race and not just the elect. Remember this hermeneutical principle. We've mentioned this before. When normal sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense or else we get nonsense. And to interpret world as meaning the elect throughout the world is nonsensical. The fourth text, John 1, verse 29. 
The next day, John, this is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus is the ultimate sacrificial lamb. We commemorate that at communion. And we're having communion later this month. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One more time, in order to fit into the limited atonement argument, Calvinists have to change the normal meaning of the word world to mean the elect. It's interesting that the word world is used a total of 80 times in 59 verses in John's gospel. John 1 verse 29 is just one instance of those uh, verses. And not once in John's gospel does that word world mean the elect. Actually, this word world is mentioned 240 times throughout the New Testament, and not once does it mean the elect. Now, one argument some Calvinists use is that the New Testament mentions instances citing that salvation is provided to limited groups of individuals and not all people, period. I mentioned some of those groups on the note sheet. Salvation is provided to his people, meaning the Jewish people. Salvation is provided to his sheep, meaning those that follow him. Salvation is provided to his friends and the church and the bride. And the bride is just a grammatical metaphor describing the church. We know that salvation is offered to these different groups. But to argue that because salvation is offered to a group of people, it means salvation isn't offered to all people, that argument is considered a negative inference fallacy. Notice the definition. A negative inference fallacy means that if a proposition is true, it does not follow that a negative inference from that proposition is also true. A negative inference fallacy, I'm going to illustrate this, means that if a proposition is true, it does not follow that a negative inference from that proposition is also true. That means the proof of a proposition cannot be used to disprove its converse. Consider this example of a negative inference fallacy. This is the premise. All Orthodox Jews believe in Jesus. And, and that is the case. All Orthodox uh, Jews believe in Moses, pardon me, in Moses. Second statement, Mr. Jones, hypothetical Mr. Jones, is not an Orthodox Jew, okay? He's not Jewish. Third statement, therefore, Mr. Jones does not believe in Moses. That's the conclusion. That argument cannot hold up in the court of logic because the conclusion that Mr. Jones does not believe in Moses is dependent on a negative inference from the premise that all Orthodox Jews believe in Moses. Mr. Jones could be an unorthodox secular Jewish person that still believes in Moses. Or Mr. Jones could be a complete non-Jewish Gentile person such as ourselves that believes in Moses. So because these specific groups we mentioned earlier are said to be recipients of salvation, we cannot use a negative inference to argue that the atonement must have been limited to them. That would be the negative inference fallacy. The fact Christ's sacrificial death included these people groups doesn't mean that it didn't include others that aren't mentioned. 
As an example, I'm, I'm using the example of food, which probably isn't a good analogy. I started a diet. I'm, I'm practicing intermittent fasting. I'm trying to go 20 hours per day without eating and then just have a small window to eat. I've lost 10 pounds, but I have much more to lose. Um, and so I'm hungry all the time. Um, I appreciate pizza. I love pasta, love pizza. Um, but because I appreciate pizza, that doesn't mean I don't appreciate a bowl of cram, clam chowder, especially clam chowder in a sourdough bowl. You can buy them at Walnut Creek. You can buy them on the wharf, San Francisco. I love clam chowder in a sourdough bowl. I appreciate barbecue brisket and barbecue burnt ends. And if you don't know what a burnt is, man, you have missed it. I don't even, you have no clue. I mean, burnt ends are amazing. It's a delicacy. Um, but I don't find it here. Uh, barbecue's not good here. Sorry. Um, but I appreciate barbecue. But that doesn't mean I don't appreciate macaroni and cheese. I made some last night. That is the extent of my cooking skills, I might add. Okay, that was it. I appreciate lemon meringue pie. Can't find a good one, but I love lemon meringue pie. But that doesn't mean I don't appreciate oatmeal raisin cookies. See, the fact that I appreciate some foods doesn't mean I don't appreciate other foods. In the same sense, the fact Jesus died for each of these people groups we mentioned earlier doesn't mean, doesn't mean he didn't die for other people. The groups we just mentioned are a reference to people groups that receive Jesus and in doing so, cause the atonement to be efficient for themselves. These groups are some of the elect. These groups are not all of the elect. Number five, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. This is familiar, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. That mediator is not the pastor or priest or the Virgin Mary or a dead saint, but that mediator is the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who? Christ Jesus from the preceding verse. Gave himself, meaning as a sacrifice on the cross, who gave himself as a ransom for all, not some, all. Now, some Calvinists that promote limited atonement argue that the all mentioned in this statement doesn't mean all people without exception, but it means all people without distinction. It doesn't mean all people without exception, but it means all people without distinction. Distinction means a difference or contrast between people. So the argument is that Jesus died for all people without distinction, meaning without differentiating between people. Jesus saves different people from different people groups. Jesus saves people from different racial and ethnic groups. Jesus saves people from different societal economic stratas. It means Jesus didn't die for just the suburban upper middle class professional people, but Jesus also died to save high school dropouts and those suffering from addictions and those that are unemployed and the homeless and on and on. According to this argument, Jesus sacrificed himself as a ransom for all different people categories, but not all people, period. Let me use an example of how unreasonable that argument is. This is hypothetical. Suppose a store such as Home Depot has a huge sign outside reading, gigantic sale, all merchandise half price. 
Gigantic sale. All merchandise, half price. I find that interesting. Could, could get a deal. So I go inside and I'm wandering around and I discover that some of the merchandise is not on sale as stated on the sign outside. As an example, I wander into the tool department and I find that the ratchet and socket sets are still at first full price, not on sale. And I wander around and find some other tools. A dozen other tools are also not discounted. And then I wander into other areas of the store, and the same is the same case throughout the store. So I'm frustrated, so I go to customer service, and I register a respectful complaint to this customer service person. I said, I don't understand this. The sign outside said, all merchandise on sale, half price. And I've gone through the store, and I have found that all the merchandise is not on sale for half price. But the customer service person tells me that I misunderstood the sign. He informs me that the sign reading all merchandise has price doesn't mean all merchandise without exception, but it means all merchandise without distinction, meaning all the tools have price, all the paint supplies have price, all the adhesive have price, and on and on and on. It means all different categories of merchandise are on sale have price, but not each item of each category of merchandise is on sale have price, and that's the difference. So dummy me. If that's the case, then that store is practicing deceptive advertising. And we have a right to register a concern at customer service. Because if that's what the store management meant on that sign, then that is what the store management should have said on that sign. It should have read, gigantic sale, all different categories of merchandise, half price. But it didn't say that. It would seem that the Apostle Paul was a strong proponent of truth in advertising. And so he said what he meant, and he meant what he said, and he said that Jesus sacrificed himself as a ransom for all. And that all means all without distinction, and that all means all without exception. It means both. Number six. Hebrews 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus... Who was made, I mean, Jesus was made into human form at Bethlehem, actually at his conception nine months earlier, a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death. Where did Jesus taste death? On the cross. For everyone. That he might taste death for everyone. The Greek word that is translated as everyone could be better translated as each one. It could also be translated as whosoever. Jesus tasted death, a sacrifice for sin, death on the cross for each one, meaning each member of the human race, not just each one that believes. In our first church, and this goes back more than four decades, we started our first congregation. I was just 24 and a half. And um, the more I think about that, the more ridiculous that sounds. But it happened, and God blessed it. Amazing. In our first church, there was a bright young man named John Allen, probably in his mid-20s. Extremely bright. 
very much well-read, and he was a Calvinist. I would probably categorize him as a hyper-Calvinist. He was such a committed Calvinist that I nicknamed him John Calvin Allen and uh, kind of made fun of him a little bit. Um, one, after, one, one time after a service, he approached me and he wanted to correct me on how I evangelize. And I found that interesting since he didn't actually evangelize himself. Um, but he was concerned about how I evangelize. He was concerned about what I was doing that he wasn't doing. Sort of like the evangelist Dale Moody. Uh, a woman approached him after service and she complained about what he was doing. And he said, ma'am, I like what I'm doing a whole lot more than what you're not doing. And that's how it was. He didn't want to do it himself, but he wanted to be able to tell me how to do it. So he told me that I could not, in theological good conscience, I could not say to an unsaved person that Jesus died for his sins. He insisted I couldn't do that. His contention was that it is theologically permissible to make the generic statement that Jesus died for sins, but he insisted, I am not to personalize that statement and actually tell someone unsaved that Jesus died for his sins. Because if that person is not a Christian, then I can't know if that person is one of the elect or not. Over time, if it turns out this person has not been elected to salvation, meaning he never received Jesus, then that's tangible evidence. Jesus did not die for his sins because, according to him, Jesus died only for the elect. And because of that, he said, we cannot, we cannot tell someone unsaved that Jesus died for you. Can't do it. Now, Calvinism was relatively new to me at that time. I now know that his hypothetical evangelism approach was just being consistent with his hyper-Calvinism. But after he finished this long spiel, I stood there and listened, didn't interrupt, I manufactured the best theological rebuttal I could find and said, are you nuts? And then to demonstrate his inability to alter my theological thinking, I still tell people, Jesus died for you. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have done. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua died for you. Number seven, John 3.16. This is the most often quoted verse in the entire Bible. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son. His only begotten son means his one and only unique son. And that son is Jesus. And Jesus is his unique son because he is the same as God himself. Jesus is a member of the triune Godhead. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, Jesus, should not perish in hell but ever have everlasting life in heaven. Notice this first statement, God so loved the world. That phrase means that if Christ's atonement, if Christ's sacrificial death is limited to only the elect and not all people, then so is his love. Limited atonement means limited love. If divine love is limited, then that means in a redemptive sense, God loves only the elect and no one else. One of the most famous Calvinistic theologians is a man named Arthur Pink, now deceased. 
And according to Mr. Pink, Calvinism teaches God doesn't love all people. He said, because God is sovereign, God loves who God chooses to love and no one else. And in his estimation, that is the elect only. Some extreme hyper-Calvinists teach that God actually hates the non-elect. As offensive as that concept is. The Christian gospel is to be presented to all people as in indicated in the extensive usage of the word whosoever. In John 3.16 is just one example of a biblical statement that uses the language whoever. The word whoever is mentioned more than 110 times in the New Testament, and in each case it has an unrestricted meaning. There are no grammatical limitations on this word whoever. Sometimes... Because of that, I personalize the whoever statements that relate to salvation, and I do that through inserting someone's name into those verses that use the word whoever. Let me insert someone's name into John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that if Susie Q believes in him, Susie Q, Cleden's Clearwater Revival, 1968. It was a song, Susie Q. I didn't make it up. Okay. A little retro there. Okay. If Susie Q believes in him, then Susie Q should not perish in hell, but have everlasting life in heaven. Does that personalized and edited reading represent the original intent and meaning of that verse? I believe it does. How can I, in good conscience, insert someone's name into that statement and invite them to believe on Jesus and have eternal life unless Jesus did, in fact, die for them so as to make that option possible? As a college student, I met a missionary named Bob Hughes. He died of cancer not long after. Bob Hughes built a 25,000-member Congregation in Manila, Philippines. At a time, that size of mega congregation was unheard of. And I remember he made famous this statement. He said to us, you can't bring the gospel to the wrong address. You can't bring the gospel to the wrong address. And that's because we can't. And we can't because Jesus died for all people. Number eight, the final one. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And that's never been truer than now. Even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. This verse states that the sacrifice Jesus made actually paid the price needed to purchase the salvation of false teachers. And since these false teachers are not the elect, then the atonement cannot be limited to the elect. It is said that the Lord bought these false teachers, and the word bought in the Greek language is agorezo. And agorezo means to redeem something, to purchase something through the payment of a a price. The original usage of that word was to purchase a slave. 
And it is the same word used to describe Christians being purchased or redeemed by God in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. The fact that all people are not saved is not because Jesus did not pay the purchase price for all people to receive salvation, but it is because all people do not accept him and do not accept what he did for them through his death on a cross. And false teachers are just some of those Jesus-rejecting people. One argument is that if Jesus died for all men, and if all men are not saved, then the cross is of no effect and is in fact a sham. Using that same logic, then answer this question. Are the Ten Commandments considered a sham and of no effect because not all people keep the Ten Commandments? No. In the same sense, the extent of the atonement meaning as to who Jesus died for, is not contingent on someone's acceptance or rejection of the cross. One more argument some Calvinists use is that unlimited atonement results in double punishment on the unsaved. That argument sounds like this. If Jesus was punished on the cross for the sins of all people, then those people that reject him are themselves going to be punished in hell for those same sins. So their sins are punished twice. That's called double jeopardy. And there is a double jeopardy clause in the Fifth Commandment, Fifth Amendment of the Constitution. According to modern jurisprudence, double jeopardy is illegal because someone cannot be punished for the same criminal offense twice. Some Calvinists teach that unlimited atonement, the position we hold, Uh, results in double jeopardy because someone's sins would be punished twice. Someone's sins are punished once on Jesus, on the cross, and then those same sins are punished once more on that unsaved person in hell. The argument is that to punish someone's sins twice is unjust, and God isn't unjust. I would argue that if that situation did constitute double punishment, it is the sinner and not God. Notice, it is the sinner and not God that in effect demanded that punishment because he rejected the divine pardon. No one can accuse God of being unjust in executing punishment on sin because someone told him no and rejected the opportunity to go unpunished. Andrew Jackson was this nation's seventh president. It is said President Jackson had once pardoned a convicted murderer. This man had been sentenced to die as punishment for his horrific crime. But one afternoon, the warden of that prison went to his cell and through the prison bars handed this man a pardon from the President of the United States. President Jackson had agreed to pardon this man. This man wouldn't accept that pardon. The warden said to this inmate, you don't understand. You don't understand what this pardon means. This piece of paper means you are a free man. You are, in a sense, forgiven. In a practical sense, it is as if you had never even committed the crime. that's, That's the essence of this pardon. Please accept this. But this inmate still wouldn't accept this pardon. He said to the warden, no, I don't want it. He's on death row. He's sentenced to die. His refusal to accept that pardon started a legal battle. Does a man have the right to refuse a pardon? 
can a man be forced against his will to go free? It is said the United States Attorney General also came to this prison cell and he begged this man to accept this pardon, but he still refused and refused and refused. This case went all the way to the Supreme Court where it was decided a pardon is only a piece of paper until the guilty party accepts it. Unlimited atonement means that the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ was sufficient and able to save all people, but efficient to actually save only a limited number, and that limited number consists of only those that believe and receive Him. And I hope and pray you're one of those. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for your word. Um, I hope this made more sense than last time. Theology is not easy to teach, especially controversial theology. But I'm very grateful to know, I'm very grateful to know that your son Jesus died for mankind. He died for the sins of all people from all time. Although that sacrifice is only applicable and efficient for those people who put their faith in Him and believe on Him. But it's possible for anyone to be saved and for anyone to be forgiven because of unlimited atonement. I'm grateful for that teaching. I pray that if there's anyone in this room who isn't certain of their salvation, if they're not sure, Lord, I pray they'll come to me after the service and say, Pastor, can we sit down? I want to make an appointment. I want to get this thing squared away. I want to know that I'm forgiven. I want to know that I'm going to heaven. Nothing is more important than that. So God, I pray that someone would be willing to do that even today. Again, thank you for your love, the fact you love all of us, and the fact that you made a way possible to yourself through the atoning death of your son Jesus. I'm so grateful, forever grateful. Thank you. In his name I pray, amen.